information that you receive on Exclusively Inclusive Podcast is designed to be a learning experience for patients and listeners in order to supplement their own information so they can be better equipped to be advocates in their own healthcare journey. The opinions expressed by Erin Everett are the opinions of her own and do not represent any third parties or separate entities. In addition, the specialists that present on the show are also here to supplement your own healthcare information and are not designed to replace any treatment plans or information you're receiving from your own healthcare specialists. We hope that you enjoy the show and continue to subscribe and listen in. My practice philosophy over the years, what I find serves my patients best, and I know this sounds very obvious, <laughs> but is really trying to understand what the patient's goal is mm-hmm. and you know, setting aside my biases and my preferences mm-hmm. and, and trying to help them get to that goal. And it's never bit me. You know, it's, right. it's like those patients do well, they're very happy. These are very well thought out decisions. Mm-hmm. And within reason, as long as we're not doing harm, it's, it's worked out very well. Right. You know, so rather than taking that kind of paternalistic approach and saying, you know, doctor knows best. Right. I, I, th- I think the medical profession are slowly beginning to realize no. Right. And, you know, patient knows best. Welcome to Exclusively Inclusive, your source for the latest in LGBTQIA healthcare, transgender HRT, and personal empowerment. Here's your host, Aaron Everett. Hey everybody, and welcome back to Exclusively Inclusive. I'm your host, Erin Everett, nurse practitioner. On today's episode, we're going to be interviewing very special guest, Dr. Siv Gallagher. Dr. Gallagher is a double board certified surgeon in both general and plastic surgery. She has her own practice in Miami, Florida called Gallagher Plastic Surgery. She does offer all kinds of plastic surgery and cosmetic elective procedures with a special emphasis on gender affirmation. With her background in academics, Dr. Gallagher always seeks to combine her artistic flair with the latest cutting-edge techniques to bring an outstanding natural result to her patient. Originally from Ireland, Dr. Gallagher earned her medical degree from University College in Dublin, where she graduated in the top 3% of her class, which after speaking with her was literally no surprise. This woman is brilliant. After graduation, she decided to move to the United States to seek some world-class training. Then she completed eight more years of intensive surgical training. Dr. Gallagher served as an assistant professor at Indiana University from 2015 to 2020, where she researched and developed new techniques such as masculoplasty. We're going to be talking a lot about masculoplasty today, actually. And we're also going to be talking about the special surgical techniques that she uses that allows people to go home without drains. Dr. Gallagher is a leader in the field of gender affirmation surgery, and she has founded both the Eskenazi Health, Transgender Health, and Wellness Program, as well as the program at Indiana University Health. In 2020, Dr. Gallagher established her private practice in Miami. When Dr. Gallagher meets her new patients, she combines her aesthetic sense and surgical experience to evaluate them. This allows the patient an individualized treatment plan and ensures enhancement of the patient's own natural features. Her patient-centered approach is her secret to avoiding the operated-on or cookie-cutter look, as she puts it which is funny that she does describe it as the cookie cutter look, as I often tell my patients all the time that I don't practice cookie cutter medicine. She's a very innovative plastic surgeon. She offers her patients the latest advancements and techniques, and she's traveled extensively to learn techniques, which she has also brought back to her practice in addition to her own techniques that she's developed to better serve patients. Those are the techniques that we're going to talk about in detail today. Gallagher Plastic Surgery embodies Dr. Gallagher's world-class standards of care and excellence delivered in a patient-focused, warm, and friendly setting. 
Along with her sister Nessa, Dr. Gallagher has designed every detail of her practice with the goal of delivering the best possible patient experience combined with outstanding results. I have no doubt that you guys are going to really enjoy speaking with Dr. Gallagher today. And the best thing you could do after this episode, if you're thinking about getting surgery, particularly if you're falling somewhere in the gender spectrum and identify as non-binary, is sitting down having a conversation with her. She's going to do her best to meet you exactly where you're at. So without further ado, please welcome Dr. Siv Gallagher. All right. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gallagher. We're so happy to have you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you. So before we get started, would you go ahead and let our listeners know kind of what your pronouns are and just maybe like a little fun fact about you or a hobby? Sure. Uh, So my name is Saif Gallagher and uh, pronouns she, her, hers. And I guess fun fact, probably one of the things I get asked a lot is my accent. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I'm Irish born and raised. Yeah, so I guess that, that'll be the fun fact for now. <laughs> yeah, excellent. That is a fun fact. I love your accent. I have a lot of remote family that I, I haven't met most of them, but they're all from Northern Ireland yeah. and Belfast area. So when you told yeah. me that you're from Dunbach, I looked it up. And so that's kind of near the border, right? It's very close. Yeah, it's just, I mean, I, I was born and raised three miles south of, uh, south of the border. Oh, cool. So my accent would be considered pretty northern. And, and one other thing I notice is you don't pronounce, you haven't pronounced a second G in Gallagher. Nobody knows that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so definitely there's the Irish connection there. <laughs> yeah, most people say it wrong, right? Exactly. Yeah, my maiden name is McGoldrick. So you can imagine oh, um, yeah. the amount of confusion that people would get with that. It's like McGoldrich, oh, McGoldratch. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. Yeah. Well, cool. So, you know, one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on the show is because you offer such an amazing service to the trans community, Thank you know, you. with your the surgeries. And I was looking at your website. You have a lot of different options for both the feminization and masculinization process, which I find really unique and awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think one of the things I always say is my patients have been my best, my best teachers. Mm-hmm. You know, when I got into this field years ago, I was coming from a, you know, a surgical background where, you know, if you need your appendix out, you Mm -hmm. you get an appendectomy and, you know, there's kind of one size fits all. And of course, you know, we understand now that humans are very diverse creatures and, Mm -hmm. you know, my patients have really taught me that. And we really have to individualize what is going to be affirming to that individual. So, uh, and of course, you know, 20 to 30% of my patients uh, identify as non-binary. So, what I strive to offer in my practice is just a range of different things that patients can be educated on. And then, you know, hopefully we can find the solution that's most affirming for them, for them, if they need surgery at all. You know, right, right. Surgery is not for everybody. So, right, right. Of course. But if, you know, someone's not seeking surgery, they're probably not reaching out. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So by the time they land in your lab, the fact that you're doing such patient-centered individualized care is is really kind of unique because a lot of, I think, in general providers, you know, some of the providers I've had on the show are definitely, you know, much like yourself and do provide uh, patient-centered care. But I, I still wouldn't think it's common to come by. I think a lot of people do practice what I like to call cookie-cutter medicine. So it's refreshing to find yeah. other providers that don't do that. Yeah, yeah. And it's definitely... You know, it's a deficit that's there. The medical profession, you know, particularly the medical profession in the United States, we've been a little bit behind, you know, we're catching up, we're trying to figure this stuff out. So still, you know, it's, it's, it can be very difficult, you know, particularly it's, it's a binary world out Mm -hmm. there really in in the medical profession still. And I'll still several times a year, for example, uh, I will see patients who have had top surgery elsewhere 
and the surgeon they were dealing with, you know, insisted that let's say their nipples were put back on again, you know, mm-hmm. when, when they're clearly saying this is not affirming to me and this is, you know, not what I want. But for whatever reason, you know, that that surgeon thinks, well, no, this is what's top surgery. Right, <laughs> and right. And we end we end we end up removing the nipples, you know, which is a very simple procedure. But again, it just sort of speaks to there's a, there's a lack of understanding there amongst the medical community. It's improving all the time, but we have a ways to go. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And so when you're talking about the nipple procedures and everything, too, I guess I have a question about that, because I know other surgeons do it differently as well. When you are replacing the nipples for people who do want to keep them, are you keeping any breast tissue? Well, so typically the main two procedures I'll do for top surgery would be the classic kind of double incision mm-hmm. or my version of that is, is mascoplasty. And then mm-hmm. the other for smaller chested individuals, uh, we're usually doing keyhole or a minimally invasive procedure mm-hmm. where we're just making the little incision in the nipple itself. But, you know, again, there's a range of other procedures we can do in between, you know, breast reduction type stuff. So where we'll keep a variable amount of breast tissue. So by and large, the patient tells me, you know, how much breast tissue they want left behind. Mm-hmm. But with regards to nipple, there's a, there's a few different ways of, you know, recreating that nipple or preserving that nipple. And it, it, we could get quite technical talking about this. You know, there's mm-hmm. a way you can keep a nipple on a stalk or what we call a pedicle. Mm-hmm. Or the more common way would be to take it off completely redesign it reshape it and put it back on uh, the chest so i would say the majority of my top surgery patients for their goals they you know i'm often asked for a masculinized chest for so mm-hmm. usually in order to achieve that we would take the nipple off completely and, and replace it so that's called a free nipple graft but it is possible and it, it depends on the size of the breast to begin with uh to keep it on a pedicle and i, I get asked to do that a few times a year mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that would be usually individuals who are really concerned about sensation. Okay, that's um, what I was going to ask you if that was yeah. the main difference there. That would be the main difference. We do that, you know. So usually we're able to get the chest pretty flat as long as we're starting out with maybe a B or a small C cup to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, the problem is, you know, not many trans men, for example, wear bras, you know, so the oh, right. cup size thing can get very, you know, I try to stay away from that because it can be confusing for folks. But, um, you know, usually that's the patients who request me to do that. In in my patient population that we've chosen to do the pedicle, we have been able to get them quite flat uh, and they have been able to keep sensation, but that's not the rule. There's no guarantee you'll be able to keep a sensation, unfortunately, with any of the techniques. But one thing I'll tell you that's interesting about the free nipple graft, when it comes off completely mm-hmm. and goes back on again, I always thought like, back you know before i was doing these surgeries i always thought well that nipple will be numb for life mm-hmm. but we're actually seeing that's not true sensation does come back it may not be as sensitive as it was to begin with but we know there's one study out of germany where they had what patients described as good sensation 80 percent of patients had what they describe as good sensation one year after surgery so with any of these mm. surgeries you know we would really you typically don't have large areas of numbness permanently. It can take a long time for the nerves to march back in again, mm-hmm. but we're usually not talking about permanent numbness. And once the nipple graft goes well, oftentimes those new nips will act pretty normally and get hard when it gets cold. And you yeah, know, um, yeah, so. yeah. Well, the body's an amazing thing, and so I'm sure the peripheral nerves yeah. do restore it. You know what you're saying to yeah, some extent. So exactly. That, yeah. So that's really yeah. cool because I think that's you know yeah. a lot of people feel like 
you know, what you're saying is they have to kind of decide and be expected to not have sensations. There's a little bit of hope there then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. So one of the other things I wanted to make sure we touch on today is because I have had other affirming surgeons on the show and most kind of deal with vaginoplasty. So I really wanted to talk to you too about um, your procedures for metatoidoplasty and phalloplasty and kind of what that looks like for patients, like insurance coverage and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So meta uh, versus phallow, you know, it's unfortunately it's one of those things there's not a great solution for either because with each with all of the procedures mm-hmm. there are compromises right and so what we have to do there's a lot of education has to be done with each individual patient and you really have to sit down and navigate the patient's goals you mm-hmm. know what is you know if we can get a hierarchy of the patient's goals that's that's awesome you know to, to figure out which procedure would fit the best then there's other limitations such as the patient's body type, mm-hmm. you know, um, their BMI, that sort of thing. What procedure is going to do well for them? Certain factors such as growth, bottom growth, you know, whether mm-hmm. there's um, much of that has happened or not. But typically, whenever I talk about bottom surgery for transmasculine people, we, we can um, break them down into two main categories. And that would be meta, where we're using the patient's own tissue or bottom growth down there. Mm-hmm. We're maximizing it and we're using it uh, to create the, the male parts. Mm-hmm. So there's a bunch of different maneuvers we do to the anatomy down there, uh, you know, to help bring it kind of front and center usually is, is, is what we're doing. And so it just depends on the individual patient what we'll do. But typically what we'll do is re- release some ligaments that mm-hmm. allow things to stand up more. Uh, we may do uh, what's called a mons lift to, to bring things more forward and mm-hmm. uh, expose the growth a little bit more. And then, you know, the it's how, how we deal with the, the other anatomy down there. It's, it's possible to uh, do a vaginectomy where we remove the vagina. Of course, you need to have a hysterectomy to do that. You can then create, do a scrotoplasty to create a scrotum and then possibly do testicular implants. But again, a lot of these different steps are optional, you know, mm-hmm. and then, of course, there's the question, do we add in urethral lengthening, a, a stand to pee procedure or not? Mm-hmm. So what I would say is it's so important you know education because uh, uh, there's a lot of myth out there a lot of confusion and a lot of patients don't understand what their options are Mm -hmm. you know so in my patients so I'm a plastic surgeon I'm not a urologist I'm not a plumber so Mm -hmm. right now unfortunately here in Miami I I don't have a plumber so we don't do the stand to pee options Mm -hmm. so what we do is typically my patients who are opting for meta are doing um you know, all those other procedures to enhance and bring forward the bottom growth that they have. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're still going to pee from where they always pee. And that works quite well, whether or not we're doing the scrotoplasty or the mm-hmm. testicular implants or anything else. Mm-hmm. So so that's meta. And then on the, you know, the major dis- downside um, patients find what meta is you're always going to be limited in size because you're working with the anatomy you have down there mm-hmm. so so typically as an idea you know the the uh, erect penis would probably be kind of thumb size you know at best you know mm-hmm. depending on how much growth you've had down there mm-hmm. so so that's meta and then we shift over to the other thing which is phalloplasty and phalloplasty just means creating the male parts but now we're going to bring in tissue from elsewhere in the body in order to create it 
And this is where it can get so confusing for patients because there are so many different places you can bring this tissue in from. So the more common ways would be to bring it in from the arm, the mm -hmm. forearm, mm -hmm. and but we can bring it from the belly, we can bring it from the thigh, we can bring it from the lower leg, we can bring it from the back. Oh, wow. So, so, and, I didn't and, realize and, that. So yeah so and you know th these are it's just you have to tailor to the individual patient mm -hmm. and with each of the places you're taking it from there are downsides and upsides so you know if we want to focus on maybe one of the more common ways traditionally of doing it was um, creating the male parts from the forearm mm -hmm. and so many people look at that and say what in the how is that a good way <laughs> to make it and i remember that's what i thought the first time yeah I but the advantage of taking it from the arm is you're able to roll a tube within a tube. So again, you're serving that stand to pee function. Yeah. So uh, and then the other the other advantage of it is there's a healthy supply of nerves to that tissue of the forearms, the anti and uh, um, the medial lateral antibrachial cutaneous nerves, mm -hmm. which could be potentially hooked up to the nerves down below, so that it's maybe going to be possible to grow erogenous sensation into the male parts. So that was one of the reasons it was traditionally done. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there's, again, the major downside of taking tissue from the arm is going to be the scar. Because right. it's a pretty obvious scar and you have to take a skin graft from the leg mm -hmm. to cover the scars. So lots of scars, lots of what we call donor site morbidity, you know. So um, that's why some patients will opt for the thigh or the belly or, or there's there's you know like i said the back the lower leg there's lots of different options mm -hmm. um with phalloplasty there are a number of different stages you can do because it is it's difficult it's a complex thing and mm -hmm. a many stage thing when i when we talk about stages i mean number of operations so what oftentimes we have to do is create the the male parts first mm -hmm. then possibly come back to what's called a glandoplasty to make it look a little bit more natural mm -hmm. then for erections we have to put in a device for the patient to be able to have erections and then you know if you want to do the plumbing there's oftentimes a, a number of different steps towards standing to pee yeah. so they're complex surgeries you know uh, for this reason mm -hmm. Amongst my patients, the fellow plasty folks will always go through insurance pretty much with the only exception will be when we create it from the belly we can do an abdo fallow and the first part of that procedure we we can that is pretty affordable we're able to do that if their insurance doesn't cover it and, and the reason patients like that is because when we use the tissue from the belly it, it kind of the donor site or where we're taking that tissue we're able to do a tummy tuck so you know oh, a, a lot of folks like that one you know it's, it's one of the best scars but, you know, when it comes to all the other types, because they're long and complex procedures that oftentimes will require, you know, at least a few days in hospital, mm -hmm. that's usually when we have to get insurance coverage because it becomes tens of thousands once we're talking about, you know, days in hospital, it gets pretty right. expensive. Right. So, you know, meta can, can often be done out of pocket because, you know, depending on the complexity, uh, you know, and how many kind of bells and whistles we want to do, that could be out of pocket as it's not much more expensive than top surgery and same thing for abdo fellow but all the other options pretty much we have to get insurance involved and then of course as you know you know most insurance companies it, it gets confusing because there's a number of different steps or you know I, I should say there's a number it depends on the patient's individual policy 
what the requirements will be. You know, right. will that patient have to provide, you know, one, two, three, four letters, mm-hmm. whatever it is, we have to look at that individual policy. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. That's what I try to explain to people too. If they do get frustrated with the amount of letters they have to get, I'm like, it's your insurance dictating that most of the time, not the surgeon, yeah. you know, um, yeah. for coverage. Yeah. But I do have a couple yeah. of questions. I noted when kind of going over your information, which I found really easy to read on your website. So I found that like probably a lot of patients, you know, the way that you have it laid out is very easy to understand, which I liked. But you did mention on here that sometimes with metatoidoplasty, you get better results if they've been on testosterone for two years. Yeah. 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 Is that to get the and optimal bottom growth? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Because we know, you know, certain changes and it can be very frustrating for patients when they're starting on testosterone because it's kind of months, even years for some of the changes, rather certainly not weeks. Mm-hmm. So one of the slower things to come in is going to be that bottom growth. And we always say in plastic surgery, you never want to operate on a moving target, whether it's if you're losing weight or you, you have, you're having bottom growth or you're mm-hmm. having top growth, you know, if you start on feminizing hormones, we always want you to be in a steady state, you know, right, because we, right. do, we don't, we want to get the best results we can. And, you know, if there's more growth going to happen or change, well, we've got to wait for that. So that's one of the times that rule applies. We want to maximize the bottom growth. So that's usually about two years. Okay. And sometimes, you know, I have patients who ask for topical testosterone for that area. And I have done that before just to enhance uh, bottom growth. Is that something that you ever recommend to your patients who might be feeling frustrated with lack of tissue growth or have you encountered that at all? Yeah. So my experience with that is I believe it works. There's not great literature specifically for these patients that have used it um, for other urological conditions. It has been successful. But what I'm finding recently, the most recent or times we prescribed it, it's you have to find a compounding pharmacy. Basically, what I'm mm-hmm. saying is it's very difficult to find. Mm-hmm. So a few months ago, I, I remember posting something and saying, "Does anybody can anybody in the community direct me to a compounding pharmacy that's doing this?" And we didn't get any results. So. Oh, really? Well, I can definitely yeah. give you some um, connections for that. Um, awesome. That do do mail yeah. order. Now they're not going to necessarily be in the Miami area, but they will ship. Yeah. So guys, yeah. I, I usually prescribe it as a one percent compounded cream. And it's usually fairly affordable because it lasts a long time. Yeah, it is good. And, you know, again, I think that it works. But again, it's all anecdotal, right? Because nobody's really directly studied it. But I have had uh, positive results with it. So that's cool. The other thing I was going to ask you then as it pertains to, you know, sometimes being on um, hormones longer helps surgical outcomes was I get a lot of questions from either patients who identify as non-binary but assigned female at birth and also transmasculine. You know, do I have to be on testosterone for a year? to get top surgery. And I definitely have Mm -hmm. patients that establish care with me to start hormones and they've already had top surgery, you know, and I typically tell them like surgically, I'm not sure what's the benefit there in either direction, but I know that basically it depends on your insurance and the surgeon, but do you have any weigh in on that on whether you get better results surgically? I do. Yeah. 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 So, so certainly 20 to 30% of my patients I do top surgery on that are not on testosterone, have no need for testosterone. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll take it in the future. So, what I will tell you is there is a myth out there that you, your breast tissue would grow back if you were to start on testosterone. I, there's no evidence that that's true. I've never seen that happen. Yeah. No. So 
you don't necessarily have to wait. However, what testosterone will do is it will atrophy or shrink the breast tissue somewhat. Mm -hmm. So there's a small group of patients that I think it's worthwhile doing some time on testosterone. We have that conversation before we do test uh, before we start it. So the first group of patients will be those who have very small chest to begin with, because Mm -hmm. if there really is not much tissue there, well, hey, maybe we'll get lucky and the testosterone will do its job and shrink that down and you may never need surgery. So that would be awesome. So that's the first group. And then the second group I think it's interesting in is the the group that are borderline that have small breasts. So again, not to talk about cup size too much, but because again, it can be pretty useless. But to give you an idea, we're we're really talking small B or an A cup. Mm -hmm. So in those patients who have small chests, who've never been on testosterone and plan to take testosterone, oftentimes we'll say, well, why don't we just see how much shrinkage we get because mm-hmm. those patients were trying to decide between are we going to do a double incision or are we going to do a keyhole mm-hmm. and maybe they'll get some shrinkage from the testosterone and now they'll be a better candidate for a keyhole surgery so those are the only two times we will say pause you know we'll wait but again you know, a patients uh, again. I like I like patients to be involved as as involved as possible in these uh, decision making because, you know, again, in, in that small chest individual, well, sure, the the breast tissue may shrink, but the skin may not shrink, so mm-hmm. we may well end up, you know, doing a double incision in the first place. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's what for, I was curious about reason, too. If it like impacted skin elasticity and all that kind of stuff, and whether or not you'd still have to end up cut a lot of extra tissue out. Yeah, oftentimes, you know, we're because of course the keyhole surgery does nothing to get rid of excess skin. Right. So, you know, oftentimes in those cases, uh, if there is excess skin, the you know the the breast tissue atrophies, but the skin is left behind, so we're still doing a double incision. Mm-hmm. So yeah, 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 that, will be that makes sense. Yeah, but otherwise, you know, and I, I've probably gotten a little cynical over the years, but otherwise, when I see insurance companies mandating one year in testosterone, I feel like it's it's oftentimes a, just another barrier to care. And of course, it's a complete disregard for individuals who don't want or need testosterone as part of their transition. Oh, 100%. So, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Yeah. And I honestly, I, you know, it just I think it goes back to just being um, ignorant and misinformed on the community other people yeah. who are making those decisions on, you know, um, the parameters and what it should be covered. Right. Yeah. Right. So that probably leads me to believe that if someone is paying out of pocket, you don't require a certain time frame. or what are your kind of requirements as far as letters and stuff go? Okay. Well, so, so the more I get into this field, the more of an informed consent model, you know, yeah. we're, we're beginning to apply, you know, and I think that's across the board. You know, initially, when I started in this field, I, I was sort of sticking to WPATH guidelines. But the version seven we have, like maybe a lot of people, a lot of folks would agree who work in this space are maybe a little bit outdated. Yes. It would be interesting to see what the, what the next version shows. So, you know, for that reason, the requirements really aren't that much. You know, obviously, mm-hmm. for minors and y- younger individuals, we're, we're going to need mental health, obviously, to be involved. Uh, but right. other than that, you know, it's it's just a conversation with each individual patient, patient and make sure they're able to consent and they're fully informed. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with that model, informed consent. I think it reduces barriers to care majorly. So the other thing I wanted to ask you too, you have on your website, you talk about the uh, masculoplasty 
procedures. Yeah. Is that um, when you're using that term? Is that encompassing just the the top surgery with the contouring, or is there something else that comes with that? Yeah. So so my version of top surgery, really, what mascoplasty for me means, that was just a name we came up with because. Mm-hmm. Like what we it, wanted yeah. to emphasize, yeah, we want to emphasize it's not just a mastectomy. It's it's a masculinizes chest masculinization, mm-hmm. you know. So there's a bunch of nuanced things with doing that surgically. But uh, one thing I'm very passionate about, and I've published on uh, a couple of times, is doing it drain free. Mm. So so that's the main difference with, with my technique is that I never put a drain in, <laughs> and so it's it's just. Um, it's a nuance, but there's a bunch of spin-off benefits. And actually, when we published and looked at the data, it does lead to lower rates of complications really? after surgery. So yeah, yeah. So it lower rates. The bane of top surgery mm-hmm. is what we call hematoma or bleeding. Right. And so it does, you know, statistically significantly drop that chance way down, and it also drops down the chance of getting a fluid collection in there. So just to kind of explain what the difference is, it's really very simple. So you know, back in the day, maybe seven years ago, when, when I would do a mastectomy and remove the tissue, pull the skin edges together, and you're left with a space in behind. And the body, human body doesn't do very well when there's spaces underneath the skin. What it mm-hmm. does is it tries to fill that space with fluid. And so in order to deal with that fluid, a little drain, a plastic tube will be placed in through the skin and would hang out of the skin for about a week, sometimes maybe two weeks to get rid of that excess fluid. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, patients, in my experience, would, would have quite a bit of discomfort with the drains that cause some anxiety. And just basically, patients don't like drains. So one of the things when I started doing this more frequently, like five years ago, I started doing the drain-free technique. And so basically, all you do is now, when you remove the breast tissue, rather just pull the skin edges together and leave that dead space, you use dissolvable stitches on the inside to quilt down that dead space. So nothing looks different from the outside. You can't see that there's any difference from the outside, but you've taken 10 to 15 minutes extra to eliminate that dead space. And so what it does, the benefits, obviously, you know, the comfort benefits, you know, we never have to use a drain, but also we don't get fluid collections, probably 800 plus. We've never gotten one touch wood. And then, you wow. know, the really cool thing we noticed was that because that potential space isn't left behind, patients seem to bleed a lot less. Oh, that's know? awesome. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's so, really cool. So go, I think, too, people get like nervous about how they're going to manage their drains postoperatively, too, because, you know, these are lay people. They don't. Maybe their first time ever having a surgical procedure being admitted into a hospital or any kind of thing like that. So it's it's kind of nerve wracking going home like strapped up with some uh, drains and worrying, are you going to pull them out too soon? You know? Yeah. So that's awesome. Yeah, it it does generate. And really, it's, you know, amongst I I used to, you know, teach other plastic surgeons in my my previous job. Mm -hmm. And that was the one thing I was like the drain free person, you know, and I used to say things that well, this is I stole this quote from a surgeon called famous surgeon Howard Kelly. He used to say a drain is a confession. Oh, was it a drain is a confession of an incomplete surgery? You know, so like my (laughs) residents would know me, I'd be like, close that dead space not leave it you know yeah so it's a technique you know the surgeon needs to know how to do it it's not very complex but hopefully in the future we're going to see more and more surgeons doing it because i believe in i mean that we have the data to back it up it's it's just it's a better procedure it's lower morbidity and the patient can shower right away and we're taking out all that anxiety and it seems to drop pain scores as well so yeah i could i bet yeah 
That's awesome. And the other thing I like about how you've coined the term masculoplasty is it does have a masculine spin on it. So people don't have to mm -hmm. walk around talking about mastectomy, which is exactly. famously feminine, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I think exactly. that's also really considerate yeah. of the community that you're serving. Yeah. 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 That's cool. So what is your favorite procedure to do out of all the ones that you do? Oh, and I mean, it's probably going to be vaginoplasty. Probably. Oh, really? Yeah. It's, I mean, it goes back and forth. You know, I, I like doing creative things. And I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, plastic surgery is awesome because you get to come up with lots of different ways of doing things. You yeah. Know, it's like have a, no two procedures are ever the same. It's artistic. So, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, usually, you know, meta allows for some creativity as well. So, but I, I think probably vaginoplasty because no two. <laughs> no two sets of genitalia are identical you right know? so so oftentimes you know which you know most patients will my briefing will be give me the most natural appearance possible you know so how to create that mm -hmm. you know it's a bit of origami kind of usually uh, yeah. you know to bring the external genitalia into um looking as natural as possible so yeah i i, I love doing those procedures but again like mascoplasty is like I love those too. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. it just sounds like you just love what you do in general. <laughs> I do. Yeah. I that's do. awesome. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it, it's great. And you know, it's one of those things I always suspected that, you know, operating would be like, I used to love drawing and painting as a kid and I would get into that state of flow people talk about and yeah. you know, forget to eat, forget to go to the bathroom or whatever. And I always hoped surgery was going to be like that. And, and it is, it's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So. That's good. Well, when you're talking about vaginoplasty, I know on your site you have basically two major different types with the penile inversion, but also the zero depth. Which would yeah. you say is the most popular that people come to you for? About 20% of my patients choose zero depth, and that's maybe a little bit higher than usual just because, again, I, I've made videos about it and you know published mm -hmm. it on it. And so for that reason, I probably see a higher amount uh, of patients. But Zero Depth is a great procedure for the community to be educated on because for the patient, probably the most difficult part of bottom surgery is the creation of a vaginal canal mm -hmm. because the maintenance that's involved, because it's really a commitment, the patient is always going to have to dilate. And it doesn't matter what way we're going to now you see like the peritoneal vaginoplasty mm -hmm. and a, a, a bunch of different newer ways of creating that vaginal canal but the unfortunate news is none of those as yet have been proven uh to be dilation free techniques the patient always has to do maintenance mm -hmm. so and then of course the worst complications that could happen all come from the vaginal canal mm -hmm. so for trans feminine or, or non-binary patient who is never going to use that vaginal canal why would they go through all the hardship of right. you know ha having a more morbid surgery mm -hmm. and all the dilation to go with it so that's why zero depth is a fabulous procedure for you know quite a few patients because it feminizes everything on the outside from the outside you can't tell uh, you know if there's a vaginal canal or not and uh but they don't have to do the maintenance and they don't have to risk you know it's a much lower risk procedure mm -hmm. so for that reason it's it's very nice you know and it's it's good that because typically the patients who will come to me for that procedure they're like i didn't even know that was an option you know yeah. it's like oftentimes what they'll say you know and then i saw your youtube video and yeah. that's, that's how they end up with me you know so mm -hmm. again it's sort of harping back to the fact that when it's patient-centered care, I mean, the patient has to be educated on the options, you know? Right, so, right. right. You know, so they can make it to choose an yeah. informed decision about what works best mm -hmm. for them. Yeah. 
Have you ever, and I've asked other surgeons this, and I know it's just now becoming more talked about, but other nine, uh, non-binary options would be like penile sparing vaginoplasty or just total, you know, basically removal of all the external genitals. Yeah. Like those other two options. Have you ever done those procedures or shown interest in doing those procedures? Yeah. So I haven't done like nullification. I think that like yeah. the other, you know, term for where, where we just remove everything. Yeah. I haven't done that. It's something I'm interested in. That's something that I'd have to collaborate, you know, with the mental health professionals because it does take away erogenous sensation and maybe it, it probably takes away the ability to orgasm mm-hmm. so that you know just for me again and i'm coming i you know coming into this field as a straight cisgender woman right i've had so much education and again that's something i i kind of have concerns about i haven't done it personally i don't think any of my mentors have done it that i know of right but that's something that i i would i would need to be educated on more you yeah know, what the goals were for that individual and what the motivations were because mm-hmm. I, I like quite honestly i i, I don't quite understand you know, where, where that patient's needs will be coming from. But, you know, again, I, my patients have taught me to have an open mind, so I would need to be educated on that. With regards to the other patients, or, I mean, the other non-binary procedures, it really comes down to me when I talk to a patient, for example, I had a patient recently who didn't want to do, she identified as trans feminine, but she didn't want to do penile sparing, but what she, her goal was to, essentially appear like a, a transmasculine patient who'd undergone bottom growth to a large clitoris. Okay. So, so that sort of thing, you know, it's like, that's technically easy to do. So in, in those situations, it just, it's a discussion with the patient. It's to really try and understand the goals as well as possible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, can we do it and can we do it safely? Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. I, yeah, I yeah. hadn't thought about that. Just like kind of reducing the size of the phallus to look at more like a meta yeah, 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 yeah. That was yeah. I have had that request, and again, you know, my 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 practice philosophy over the years, what I find serves my patients best. And I know this sounds very obvious, <laughs> but is really trying to understand what the patient's goal is, mm-hmm. and you know, setting aside my biases and my preferences, mm-hmm. and and trying to help them get to that goal. And it's never bitten me, you know. It's, right. it's like those patients do well they're very happy these are very well thought out decisions mm-hmm. and within reason as long as we're not doing harm it's it's worked out very well right you know? so rather than taking that kind of paternalistic approach and saying you know doctor knows best right i i think i think the medical profession are slowly beginning to realize no right <laughs> it's you know patient knows best right so. especially when it comes to their gender expression i mean i'm yeah. sure for other types of surgeries, um, like if you're talking about hemicolectomies and things like that, doctor knows Absolutely, best. Absolutely, yeah. But not when yeah. it comes to their yeah. gender expression. And so it's such a unique population that you serve. And there's not a lot, I mean, a lot of the surgeons that I have talked to, um, the reason why I bring them on the show is because of the same, they're just like you, you know, they listen to their patients, they try to provide individualized care. But I, again, I still don't think that's the norm. And so it's very unique. Like no. you're a unicorn for doing those things, you know? Well, yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's very yeah. exciting. But you know, again, it's it's just you know you do what works. Yeah, and, and it's I, I've it's been time and time again, it's been re- reinforced to me that this is what works. Yeah, you know? so right. And for you, it makes results. total sense. You know, it's like, well, why wouldn't you do it this way? But yeah, not everybody absolutely. thinks the same yeah. way. You know. <laughs> yeah. 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 
Hey everyone, I have a quick favor to ask. If you wouldn't mind taking a moment and just clicking the subscribe button on whichever platform you use to listen to my show, that would be wonderful. Not only does it allow you to get notified every time I publish an episode, but it also helps with my ratings and reviews, which what that means in podcast world is that I'm able to climb up in the rating scale and reach other listeners. The whole reason why I started this show is to access people who needed the information. So please just go ahead and click subscribe. Then we can all be happy and continue to listen listen to this good quality free information. Thank you so much. So, I mean, I guess I should have asked you this earlier, but I'm really curious how you landed in Miami. Yeah, so uh, I'm Irish, obviously born and raised. Yeah. And, uh, I, I just practiced for one year in, in Dublin as an intern, and I sort of realized back then that was 15 16 years ago that it was still like an old boys club you know and I yeah. really, my surgical career would be maybe negatively affected by that so for that reason that I went to Philadelphia I did uh, general surgery in Philadelphia for five years but always wanted to do plastics got into plastics in Indianapolis in Indiana and uh, I did my three years of plastics there and uh, towards the end of that training I, I became exposed to gender affirmation surgery and and then subsequently did my own kind of fellowship because there were no fellowships back then and traveled to you know traveled to serbia mm-hmm. australia belgium a few oh, different cool. places pulled up picked up the skills and then came back to indiana and i was able to set up a program there where i was for five years so um and that but, was part of eskenazi health and exactly yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Eskenazi is the county hospital there yeah so um it was all kind of part of the, the same program and we were able to build it up and it worked uh, really well but uh i began to understand my own personality better over the years i'm not a good employee <laughs> <laughs> and I, I i have real problems with authority especially when it comes to patient care because i have ideas about how it should be right and if anybody tries to you know interfere with that it doesn't go too well so so basically i realized private practice was was definitely the, the way for me and you know i grew up by the seaside in Ireland, and even though that looks nothing like here in Miami, I, you know I, I've always loved the ocean. So yeah, yeah. Miami kind of was an obvious choice. A much you know, warmer just... version. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I kind of felt like I'd, I'd done my time, you know. Yeah. I, and I, I love the diversity down here. Yeah. And, you know, it's 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 been awesome so far. So yeah, I haven't actually yeah. had a trip to Miami. I'll have to, but uh, I have heard it's very yeah. culturally diverse there. It is. Yeah. It is. It's, I mean, it's hard to walk down the street and hear English. Yeah. <laughs> that's it's awesome. like every other language in between. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, that's yeah. great. And I know that your assistant, uh, NASA, is that how you pronounce her name? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah, that's NASA, so awesome exactly. that you guys started that practice yeah. together. That's so yeah, special. Yeah, yeah she, she's my... my seven years younger she's my sister seven years younger so and it's it's really awesome because years ago she she was always an intense advocate and mm-hmm. um but she was a school teacher so she subsequently became a school principal in the middle east wicked wow. smart girl but she was always kind of under challenged i felt like or never really that passionate about her work but she you know this has been awesome for her because she, she's such an advocate now she gets it's her job to fight with insurance companies and yeah <laughs> I mean, she's she's pretty formidable you know so um, I can but, yeah and she she's yeah she's extremely reliable you know and i i, I trust her implicitly. yeah so you know obviously but yeah, yeah no that's great especially you know you both have the same vision and want to do advocacy work and Mm-hmm. Make sure that you're delivering yeah. an excellent standard of care. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. yeah, I'm like yeah. you. I mean, there's like, you know, 
it's hard for me if I see somebody delivering substandard care. I, I take it very personally what I do. And right. I want to make sure that I'm right. always delivering excellence with any patient that I see, whether they're cis or trans or whatever. I mean, there's just a standard yeah. and it's hard for me when other people aren't meeting that standard. I get, you know, defensive right. just like you. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, what's one thing that you want your listeners to kind of know about you and um, as far as, you know, how they can reach out to you and what they can expect mm -hmm. from their experience with your practice and your staff? Yeah, well, so I would say there's probably I've had two main goals since since I've gotten in this field, because I think, you know, education is such a huge part mm -hmm. of, of the whole thing for patients and obviously the community as well. That's all or it's, you know, the community at large, you know, it's a, it's a whole other story. But one of the things like I, I spend a lot of my time and effort in it would be social media content. And it's it's funny, you know, I come from an academic background and, mm -hmm. you know, 10 years ago, I put all my effort into, you know, putting peer reviewed papers together that would go and, you know, sit, it's, try to make information as complex as possible. Right. And then these things would sit in the shelf. And so now I spend all my time trying to make, you know, comprehensible 15 second videos but these are watched by hundreds of thousands of people right so you know I, I that's like hopefully that's the community find it useful i get a lot of positive feedback on that so yeah i would say follow me on social media i've got tiktok and the the gender surgeon on tiktok yeah um oh i've seen Instagram. your tiktoks they're great yeah I, yeah right. yeah i i mean i was i was a little bit late to the tiktok game i you know was, that was my sister's idea and i really didn't want to do it i'm like i'm not dancing <laughs> yeah. but then it's turned out you know because it's such a challenge you know mm -hmm. because it's these complex concepts and now i have to put them in 15 second videos you know so i, I got a lot of fun out of it and That's so Insta instagram i'm dr site gallagher and then um i've got youtube as well and facebook um all under my names and then the other thing i'll mention just real quick is yeah. my pandemic project which you know it was very strange as a surgeon i couldn't operate for two months yeah and so myself and all, all my other friend surgeons had never taken that much downtime yeah. so you know some of us had like you know midlife crisis or whatever but a bunch of us got together i had been working on a book you know that would basically have very accessible content that was uh very understandable lots of diagrams and i had been working on it for two years and i saw this amazing opportunity when all my fellow surgeons um, were doing nothing to reach out to some really good ones to, to help provide content, you know, and fill out because obviously I don't do all gender affirmation procedures. So they were able to fill it out for me. So we have a book who that's in the process of being published. It should, I'm hoping within a week or sorry, a month or two, it'll be, it'll be available on Amazon. It's called Affirmed. And oh. it's just our efforts to try and provide, you know, the most accessible, easy to understand pretty comprehensive we got pretty much everything from fertility preservation voice feminization facial feminization facial masculinization all the different procedures covered in there and uh as well as hormones mental health so it's pretty comprehensive and um we try to make it as inclusive as possible so the first edition should be coming out in a month or two and i'll put it all all over social media once it comes out yeah that sounds amazing so, definitely let me know and yeah. um so i can pre-order a copy um and talk awesome. to my patients about it for sure yeah that sounds yeah. awesome and i think as far as getting involved in your tiktoks and things like that and you you talking about you know changing these evidence-based literature articles down to a 15 second clip well i think that mm -hmm. the difference that it makes there 
for your patients and other, even if they don't end up being your patient, but people accessing the information that you're putting out there is it makes you more approachable. It makes you real. But it, like you said, it also delivers information in a way that they're going to be able to understand it, you know? Yeah. Because yeah. not that many people, if they haven't gone through a, a higher education where they're reading these literature articles and um, reading complex medical terminology are going to understand all that other stuff. So really, you're just making it much easier for people to feel the courage to get care, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it makes such a difference. I'm sure you, you've uh, experienced this as well is, you know, what really kind of, you know, gives me the chills in a good way yeah. is when I'll read comments from kids who are, let's say, in rural mm-hmm. Mississippi somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> and they're, they're trying to come out and their parent is just not understanding it. But when they show their parents, somebody in a white coat, so now we have the medical profession, mm-hmm. the medical professional is endorsing transgender and non-binary identities it can actually be very powerful yeah know, i agree helping that parent understand you know so that sort of thing really kind of you know i'm like okay i'll make more tiktoks yeah right well it also <laughs> so, always yeah. uh trips me up when i get an email from someone in another area of the country who's like oh my god i've been listening to your podcast and i love it and i'm like oh wow i can't believe i'm reaching that many people yeah so yeah, uh, you know for your to your point humbling, yeah. yeah it is it's yeah, like oh absolutely little old me what <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's yeah. excellent well i'm so excited that we were able to have you on the show and learn more about you and that you're definitely going to be a, a wonderful resource for my patients because I mean, Atlanta, Miami, if you drive, it's only 10 and a half hours. So that you're very accessible yeah. to all the patients that I take care of here. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, good. well, hopefully they'll, they'll have a great experience. You know, that's we tried to in my new practice. You know, I used to have like a nine month wait list for like not any particular good reason. But now we're, we're a lot more accessible, you know. Oh, so typically when a patient reaches out, you know, they should hear back within a couple of days. They should get a consult within a couple of weeks. Awesome. And then, you know, depending on the surgery, we can usually get them in weeks to months later, just depending on the complexity of it. So Yeah. Well, and I think most patients expect to wait a little bit, and I think that's fine. Yeah. Are you? That's the one question I should ask you. Are you doing uh, only in-person consults or do you do virtual medicine for patients, you know, a little bit further away who want to meet you first and talk before traveling? Yeah, virtual. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The whole 90% of our patients fly in. So that's mm-hmm. really the design of our, mm-hmm. our practice down here is just to accommodate that as much as possible and awesome. to make it as convenient as possible. So yeah, virtual is definitely for, for 100% of patients now with the pandemic, that's going to be our first stop. Right. Right. Excellent. Well, cool. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you. Awesome. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Very good chat. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. Remember, everybody, stay fierce and live your truth.